0: Hello and welcome to the Sonic Cinema Podcast. My name is Brian Scuttle. Thank you for joining me at www.sonic-cinema.com as well as the Sonic Cinema Podcast YouTube channel. You can check out the podcast on Google, Apple, Spotify, uh, Pods, wherever you listen to po- podcasts pretty much and as well as the YouTube channel. In addition to all of the uh, regular podcast episodes, we also have interviews with filmmakers and that you can listen to, and that is anywhere you listen to podcasts. You can also check us out at patreon.com backslash Cinema, where you will get exclusive early access to reviews, both new and old, as well as a new series leaving the collection, wherein I look at a movie from my movie, physical movie collection for one last time. Give it a brief, uh, review as well as um explain why i feel like it's place in my collection is Ryan's it's course and that's at patreon.com backslash sonic cinema. So we've come to another October, and October of course means talking about horror movies. And we're going to be talking about several this year between the uh episodes I have planned and but we're going to start by talking about those some of those movies within the context of their soundtracks and join me to discuss movie soundtracks is somebody whom i met on twitter a couple of years ago i've been wanting to have her on the podcast for a while and i'm looking forward to actually talking to her about film music for the first time uh dr becky o'brien becky thank you very much for joining me
1: Thank you for having me. I'm glad we could finally work this
0: out. I am too. And I, when it's funny because of the fact that originally the plan was to just talk about, you know, some of your favorite soundtracks and we would just kind of, or three soundtracks that you kind of wanted to talk about. And then when you uh, email back, it's like, I'd like to focus on horror soundtracks. It's like, well, <laughs> we'll just tie this into talking about horror movies. And I I love the fact that we uh, start off there. But before we get to that subject, um, if you could uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, and because you were you're also a musicologist as well, which was one. And I know one of the things when you uh, post online, you post a lot about film music and interviews with composers, and that's one of the things that was hmm. really interesting about uh, having you on. Uh, For me, at least.
1: Yeah, um, well, I am a musicologist. Um, I've got my PhD in musicology. I've earned it three years ago at the University of Kentucky. Um, I've been blogging about film music and films for going on seven years now. Um, I I started while I was working on my thesis. It was just to. it was just supposed to be for fun. And to my shock and surprise, it grew. (laughs) And, and yeah, I, you know, I, I I like to post, I like to post about, you know, this soundtrack I've discovered. And although now I feel like the last couple of years, my focus has shifted more towards talking to composers and trying to bring that process out so more people can know about it. Because I feel like if you know more about how a soundtrack was made, you have that much more respect for Mm. that part of the film,
0: yeah, no, I I definitely agree with that, and I mean it, it's actually kind of funny. I would I would actually you know with Sonic Sim, I almost kind of feel like that's how it happened too. Works like I started I started writing about movie review. I started writing movie reviews because you know I enjoyed talking about movies and stuff like that, and then over the years it just expanded and grew into something that is is basically as important to me as my day job and to a certain extent even more important to me um and uh yeah i mean for me i i've really gotten a great appreciation about film music over the years and i've i've been obsessed with film music for most of my life and uh you know i've i've done a few short films and stuff like that before i and i actually did just score my first feature film and I'll oh, more on that uh, in the, uh, in the <clears throat> coming weeks of, for people who've been kind of curious about that. And uh, one of the things that I find interesting about that is it, it really, first of all, what, what was it about film music that interested you when you first started getting into it?
1: Well, like I've been a fan of film music since before I knew that's what I was really paying attention to um i can remember being a kid and um i was there's a skill that mus- some musicians have it's called audiation mm-hmm. um, where you can play pieces of music in your head and and as a kid i was doing that with star wars music and i realized as i got older that the parts of the movie I was gravitating towards were the, the bits with the loudest music, um, which inevitably meant I listened to a lot of film scored by John Williams because, you know, he's a master of making those big musical flourishes. Mm-hmm. And it just sort of grew from there, um, you know, because when I went off to college, it was like it started off as music education And as I got in the latter half of my studies, I was like, wait, you can study film music. That's a thing. You can write about it and people will pay you to do it. Sign me up. (laughs) And yeah, so, so that's how I ended up in graduate school to learn about all this. And it kind of went from there, but yeah, it, it just, the music just drew me in from, from, from the earliest age, like, uh, and it also helped you know aside from the star wars and stuff i got a thorough grounding in movie classics um mm. from from my parents um every year i would watch the 10 commandments ben hur um spartacus all the big movie epics with the scores to match and so i knew all about symphonic type film music from like the earliest age and
0: yeah okay um what has been one of the most surprising things, whether it's, it's something, whether it's something that you learned while you were studying music, film music, or whether it was something that you learned in talking to film composers, what's been one of the most surprising things about film music that you've learned?
1: Oh, gosh, at all. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's so much I've learned. Um... Kind of thing like i've I've had a couple interviews lately what talking about probably one of the more surprising things I've learned is how short the turnaround time can be in getting some of these scores done
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, well the the thing with writing film scores is there's no set period of time that a composer has to do it. Some composers have told me they had the better part of a year to get the music together. Um, e- even before COVID, by the way, they would sometimes have these long periods. Um, one composer had a month, mm-hmm. maybe a month and a half to to get the whole thing written, orchestrated, and recorded. Which is which is for a full length film that is not a lot of time.
2: No, <laughs>
1: <laughs> and. So I'd say that's one of the more surprising things um but I mean in for film music in general, one of the and this is related to what we're going to be talking about, and this is why I brought the subject up is one of the things I learned about myself as I've been studying these is is how much i how much horror music soundtracks intrigue me because mm-hmm. I feel like I feel like they get a lot, a bad rap um because you know there's a lot of people who still poo-poo the the horror genre as being somehow lesser than other genres, but it's like, you know, I feel like people who say that haven't been paying attention because a lot of these soundtracks are gorgeous. Yeah. You know, and it's like, you're really missing out. If you don't at least, you know, if you don't want to watch the movie, fine. At least give the soundtrack a listen to there's some beautiful music out there.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. No, you're 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 absolutely right. And I and we can we can go ahead and start uh, pivoting towards that. Um yeah, horror scores is are fascinating to me because of the fact that even when you have something that is relatively low budget, kinda cheap, kind of skeet, kind of, you know, kind of exploitative. Like say Friday thirteenth, which we're not talking about on this podcast, but I think is a great example of that, where you've got the movie which seems very which is very much in an exploitative uh manner of the way it was shot, the way it was made, very, very low budget, but you have uh Manfredini's score, and of course the iconic theme that just really it elevates it to a degree that you wouldn't have necessarily seen coming when you first saw the title Friday the 13th. What's that? That looks like a cheap horror movie. And it is, but mm-hmm. at the same time, you have this music that just elevates it to entire in another degree entirely. And I think and we'll certainly talk about a couple of themes here that are iconic and you know I I think that's one of the things that's so interesting about the horror genre especially is that when a composer captures a theme that just fits the movie whether you're talking about Psycho, Jaws Halloween which is going to be the ones that we talk about or Friday 13th it's really it really just takes everything to a new level and and basically just shapes the genre for years to come.
2: Oh, absolutely.
0: So we, we will actually, so the, I was debating whether, how to do this because of the fact that it's like, normally I would go, you know, normally I would go, you know, we'll, we'll go over one of yours and then one of mine. But I, I kind of feel like chronologically makes more sense and. This case, uh, go going by the year of release because um, it's 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 something where it it wouldn't necessarily make as much sense to go back and forth. But at the same time, I I think hearing the kind of evolution of what these soundtracks do, even though they're for sometimes very different examples of the genre, I I think they also have Interesting ways in which one soundtrack sort of builds on something else that the other soundtrack did. Mm-hmm. So we're we're gonna start off with one that I chose, and this is uh from 1977, Dario Argento's Suspiria. <laughs> uh, the score is by the rock band Goblin. If oh you God. haven't seen the movie, uh it is basically the story of an American girl who goes to a dance school in Europe that happens to be uh that happens to be populated by witches. That's pretty much the the that that's basically the uh long and short of it. Uh the thing that is so interesting about what Goblin does in this score is it's it's it has a lot of it has a fundamental rock base, but it also really keeps in that almost weird experimental classical tradition of horror movie scores that with the use of the Celeste as well as the vocals at times that's really quite intriguing and you would. I I remember, because you you posted about uh, watching Suspiria. That was your first time seeing it, wasn't it? Yep.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I'm not going to forget it anytime soon, thanks to you.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I... Either I'm sorry or thank you, uh, which, whichever one you I, prefer.
1: I, I, I mean, that, I mean that in a nice. I mean, <laughs> I mean that in a nice way. I promise. Um, but no, that that movie literally seared itself onto my brain. Like, and and the music was a, a big reason why. Like, as soon as it started, I was like, oh, that's why he picks this one. <laughs>
0: I, well, it's funny because of the fact that it does kind of tie into your one of your choices with uh, Halloween because of the fact that one of the things that I'm always fascinated about, as, and this comes from me being an electronic compo- composer, largely working electronics, but the use of unusual instruments or synthesizers or keyboards in music I'm always kind of fascinated by that and we have a few great examples here and I think Suspiria really kind of feel fits into that one and it's funny because of the fact that I had seen this movie several several years ago I I think it was when I first got onto Netflix and they were primarily DVDs so I ran it because I'd heard about it and it's like eh, it's okay that soundtrack is interesting but overall, it didn't really do too much for me. And I watched it again a few years ago uh, in preparation for the 2018 remake of it, and um, it it definitely hit more. And the the soundtrack, apart from reminding me that like Hans Zimmer when he does theme for The Ring, very much is uh, quoting this this theme pre uh, pre explicitly actually. Um, I I think one of the things that's so fascinating about this is the use of synthesizers, the use of keyboards, but also there's a use of precaution that I think is really interesting. There are times where it's very much part of the atmosphere and very much times where it's more rhythmic and building in suspense and tension as well. What, what are some of your thoughts what what are some of your thoughts on the uh, score for Suspiria?
1: Um. Well, one thing that jumped out at me almost literally is um how the they put their voices in there and they're literally saying witch.
2: Yeah. <laughs>
1: it, it, in the soundtrack, I mean, if if that's not a a big clue drop right, and this is right at the beginning of the film before we even, you know, if you didn't think there was anything weird going on before that. That you know the voice is going, "Which, which that definitely tells you there's something weird going to be happening in the story, so talk about your foreshadowing mm-hmm. um but I also um I really like the part um, I don't even know the track name, but it sounds like like a music box, you know the part I mean,
2: yeah, yeah
1: and and, and it's one of the themes that recurs throughout the movie and it's such a contrast with like this beautiful little music box dance music clashing with the horror of the growing horror of Susie's situation. Mm-hmm. And when you combine that with like the, the vibrant, almost blinding colors in this film, it's, it's a very unique experience when you add all the elements together.
0: Yeah. It no, it really is. There is something very hallucinatory about this, and when you combine the images, when you combine the music and admittedly this is i I'm not as familiar with Argento. As probably I should be, but admittedly, this is one where you you kind of get the you kind of get a sense of what he's about and it, kind of what Italian. Horrors about like last year, a lot of people were praising uh, James Wan's Malignas a Gaio film, and you know I I think you know *Suspiria* is kind of works in that same vein I think, but yeah, you're you're right about the vocals and the fact that it's basically saying witch. It's like well yeah, there's no melody here whatsoever. I love the way the the vocal sound reminds me of. Some of the uh, classical pieces we get in The Shining later, as well as Darth Maul's theme, where John Williams used like Sanskrit to really goose the goose how ominous Darth Maul was in uh, that movie. Are you, are you talking about Duel of the Fates? Well, Duel of the Fates, but it's use of not necessarily Duel of the Fates, but they're there are a couple of cues in uh FMS, like when he first lands on uh Tatooine. Uh, is, and is there, you get these Is there a Sanskrit in there? Huh? Is there a Sanskrit
1: in there? I, I know no, the C you talk- There oh.
0: are these there are these uh there I don't it may not be Sanskrit, but it's at least these very uh quick uh vocal these yeah. very quick vocal things where it's it's uh, it it's it's designed to be a very ominous sound. It's not oh, it's yeah. not specifically in a choir setting like it is in Duel of the Fates, but uh, yeah, yeah,
1: I, I know what you mean. It's the it, it, it's supposed to like increase uh, forgive the pun the unintentional plan, but increase his menace.
0: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, um, and. You Know, I, I think it works very well there, and then you, you get in the there's examples of in the Shining as well. Uh, and I think it's one of the uh Pendraki films that or Pendraki pieces that Kubrick uses in that. Uh, and it's most noble in the scene after uh Jack kills uh Scatman Crothers' character, and yeah, um. Nah-
1: now uh, I'm ashamed to say I've never actually seen The Shining.
0: Um it's it, well, I mean, you know, it it's hey, I mean, it's a it's a tough sit. Admittedly, it is a tough sit and sorry about the spoilers. But uh oh,
1: it it is it's fine. I mean, I <laughs> for for what's, I I I do know of it and I I know about the more famous moments in it, yeah. so
0: Yeah. But uh that that that's one that uses uh that type of vocal uh those type of vocal effects as well. And I think uh that's something that Suspiria, the, the scorn Suspiria, I think, does really well with those constant almost chanting of the word witch. And you get it a few times in the film and it's really quite it, it's really quite captivating when you put it next to like, the way that they orchestrate the score, which is very much of in the vein of like a rock band scoring a piece of uh, film.
2: Yeah,.
1: I, I feel like it would have been a completely different, different movie experience had they given that film a traditional score. Mm-hmm like i I would almost go so far as to say i'm not sure the film would have worked with a traditional score it 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 almost needs that oddball sound to create the proper experience that our our is it argento is that mm-hmm. who you say his name? yeah yeah with, to create the experience that argento must have wanted
0: mm-hmm. no i mean i i think you're i I think you're definitely on to something there i mean you could say that about several of the scores that we're gonna be talking about and um where you can't imagine you can't imagine one other score will have done for it. And uh I I think it's really quite it it's it's really quite a testament to the way certain filmmakers envision their music their their film from a musical standpoint. That Mm -hmm. they have those ideas of okay, this is what I want it to sound like. I don't want it to sound like anything else.
1: That's right. Um, Was then didn't Goblin write the music before the film was ever shot?
0: Um, I'm not exactly sure about that. That honestly would not surprise me. It's not. It's you know, it's something other composers have done. I mean, I know Morricone did that for Leone a few times. So
1: yeah, because um after. Because what I like to do when I watch a movie for the first time, I will find, like, all the bits of trivia I can to sort of flesh out my knowledge of it. And I swear I read a trivia point that said that the score was finished before a single frame was shot. And I was like, that that makes so much sense.
2: Yeah, it's because... Like,
0: it, yeah, I'm looking at IMDb now, and yeah, he... I. Uh... They they did write the music beforehand in order to play it on set. Which- that,
1: oh yeah, that's right because that added to the that that helped the actors' reactions to what was going on. Yeah. Which if my if that, if they were actually hearing that as they filmed, that explains a lot.
0: Yeah, it really does. Uh, no, I mean, and and yeah, that is something that you know Morricone was Morricone did that with Leone several times and. I mean, I know, you know, we, you know, when uh, Hans Zimmer did Dune, like he had been working on that for, for ages, even, I think he was working on that even before the movie was done, I think. But I know it's part of that was because of how much he loved Dune and was really anxious to work on it and help tell that story. Yeah.
1: S- speaking of co- the colors and stuff, I learned something fascinating about about it um you know how some of the scenes are tinted blue and green yes i read um that the scenes that are tinted that color it's supposed to be understood that the room is dark
2: hmm. which
1: explains because um well you remember how the 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 one girl dies um susie's friend
0: admittedly it's been a few years since i've seen susperia
1: <laughs> Well well, 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 here's the thing. The screen's tinted blue when she dies, right? hmm So it explains why, because from our point of view, it looks like she fell into an obvious trap. Like, why didn't she see it? Well, because we can see it, but she can't, because it, it's meant to be understood that the room is pitch dark, so she didn't see the obstacle that killed her. Mm-hmm. And I found it fascinating that he, that he did that.
0: Yeah, it's, yeah, I mean, that, that type of thing is really, when, when you hear of filmmakers who do that, it's, it's really kind of fascinating to hear those, hear those things because of the fact that, I mean, it, 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 I it keeps with the, you know, it, it plays not only allows him to make, to work, Make the film as stylish as he wants to be, but he also does things in order to, in order to enhance our perspective, while also understanding. Okay, this is this is our perspective is not necessarily going to be the same as the character's perspective. And yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a, that's a really interesting thing. I may have I may have to rewatch *Suspiria* this month. It's yeah, it's yeah. been like four or five years, so yeah. Oh yeah,
1: you're definitely do a rewatch. then. because um, <laughs> I w- I was also fascinated with how um, diegetic music was treated. Um, you know when Daniel's uh the, the pianist is playing for the dancers. Um, you you can't imagine how. Oh, what's the word? Disorienting, I think is the word, but the a simple piece of piano music could be made to sound like, yeah. cause it, it's just supposed to be a regular dance practice. But as soon as it starts, it all just feels wrong mm-hmm. it, 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 in a very unsettling way. Like as soon as it starts, you know, something is going to happen.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. And uh, yeah, it's, I, I'm definitely going to, I'm, now now that we're talking about it, I'm definitely going to need to rewatch this period this month cuz mm-hmm. I'm I I just listening to it and talking about the the score just makes me just is making me inspired to rewatch this movie um, yeah. yeah and just see if uh, it's going to take it to yet yeah, another level that I didn't necessarily didn't necessarily expect even the last time re-watching it, but um, yeah, I it if you haven't, had, I don't know if Suspiria is available. I mean, I'm sure it's available for like rent and so. Su- oh, stuff.
1: oh! I actually, um, you mean like getting a copy of it? Be- oh. Because there's there's actually, um, Synapse Films has done a restored Blu-ray version of it. Okay, and, and, that, and, and that's how I got my copy.
0: Okay, and I actually already, and I actually just in Googling it, see that it's on uh, Tubi as well. So if you don't yeah. mind watching, watching it with commercials, uh, you know, sign up for free for Tubi and uh, go go have a blast. I think they have a couple of other. I know they've had. I think they've had Inferno. I might have been thinking of another, but they, they have a great Tubi has a great selection of uh horror films typically uh month to month.
1: So yeah, but 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 if you did happen to want to get a, a copy to keep, um highly recommend Synapse Films uh version. Um it's it's been perfectly restored. Um and I think it's I think it can it's been done in in 4K and it, it wasn't all that expensive to get I think I paid I think I paid like 30 bucks for it after
0: tax okay that's not bad Mm -mm. yeah because I know because I know yeah because I know you bought it when uh when we were talking about this so yeah okay that that is excellent so yeah be sure to check out Suspiria I know I'm going to this this month I don't know if I will necessarily be able to buy the uh by, by that release right now but um, yeah it's something to keep in mind for the future uh, so the next one is actually one of your choices it is oh, 1978 cool. Halloween the iconic Jar- John Carpenter score and the iconic John Carpenter uh, movie we're about to get the
1: Halloween think, ends yes, well movie in
0: that to- franchise forward. I think is it one? I don't care. <laughs> um, oh, oh, yeah, I, I, well, well, it all depends. Are, are
1: are you counting them all or just um the reboot? Because
0: <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I'm just going off the top of my head. I can't remember exactly because oh, it was like.
1: I hang on. I, I've got them all here. I will count. See, there's one, two, three, <laughs> four, five, six, seven. A uh, uh, yeah, I think this is number twelve.
0: Okay, yeah. Um, but I mean, really we could simply say, I mean, John Carpenter's theme for Halloween, need we say more? Uh, because no, let's face John it, this is, more. this is one of the definitive well, horror well, themes in movie history.
1: <laughs> yeah. C- c- Cause like, if I could jump in on that, um, I, I have had an interesting relationship with this theme, um. So, like, I, I only recently got into, I, say, I think it's been two years now since I finally took the plunge on Halloween, mm-hmm. because, because I'd know, known of it for years, but it was always one of those, that's a scary movie, I can't watch scary movies, and it was just ingrained in my head, but period, and, and so, before I'd ever seen the films, I'd heard the theme, of course I had, yeah. it's everywhere. Um but but the weird thing is before i saw the movie the theme didn't do much for me mm-hmm. i didn't i didn't get it if that makes sense I can but see when that. i but well because by itself it's just it's just a line of piano music yeah you know it, it's it's about as simple as you can get for, for film music
2: mm-hmm.
1: and so i'll never forget when i finally sat down to watch the original, scared out of my mind because of this film's reputation, mind you. The first time that theme hit, it's like something clicked in my head and I was like, oh, oh. <laughs> because when you hear it in context, it's genius yeah. how how well it works because it's like, there's something unset. It's not just what it is, it's how it's played. I I can envision carpenter like he's he's not just playing on the piano he's pounding those keys Mm -hmm. in like this rhythm that just it you feel it under your skin yeah and once it goes a couple times it's like an earworm that never stops and and you never quite know when it's going to start up again
0: Mm
1: -hmm. which makes the movie experience all the more unsettling
0: which is, you know, and that's, that's the thing that's so brilliant about Halloween as a movie, where everything is, you, what you see is relatively bloodless. There's not a lot of really vicious kills in Halloween. Speak
1: to yourself. <laughs>
0: well, I, I mean, I, I, I've, th- seen, I've seen slasher movies that have had way more vicious kills. But the um, thing is I, I, so much of it is built out of atmosphere.
1: True. But but yeah. I I I mean, okay. I know it's semi-spoiler, it's technically not a kill, but that whole scene with the knitting needle, come on, that's brutal. Oh yeah. Yeah.
0: Oh, believe me, I mean Carpenter Carpenter goes for it in a way that nobody else really had by that point. I mean, you know, and uh but so much of what he does in that is because of that score. And, oh yeah, and, and... No, keep going. And the fact that he has these moments where Laurie Strode is just walking down the street and you, you get that piano, you get that synthesizer. Her theme is really lovely but at the same time, mm-hmm. it still has that unsettling sound, and yeah. I you know one of the things that's so s- striking to me about Carpenter as a composer is the fact that he just i mean you know he's he's the filmmaker as well, so you would hope that he would have have his finger on the pulse of what his movie requires musically, but mm-hmm. the fact that he innately understands it what a film requires or should have almost in the same way of a John Williams almost in the same way of a Jerry Goldsmith who we'll be talking about this episode Mm -hmm. it's it's really quite striking the fact that not only can he be a great filmmaker and visual storyteller he can be a great one from a musical perspective as well.
1: Oh, absolutely. And like when, whenever the time comes for, you know, I, I know he's still alive and well, but when the time comes, I hope he's given his just due as a composer, not just as a filmmaker, because he, <laughs> finally fun, enough, he kills it with, with it, all the music in, in this film. And And it's all more impressive when you realize that they made Halloween on a bare bones budget. Most of the money went to getting Donald Pleasance in the film. Yeah. Which, like, when you know that, that makes it all the more impressive. Like, you know, there's so many ways this film could have gone wrong and fallen flat, but it works.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, it's, you know, the the thing that is going to his score... The simplicity that you talked about is absolutely there because there's, and I can completely understand where if you haven't seen the movie but you've heard the film, the score, you're like, I mean, okay, yeah, it's it's you know it's it it's okay, but it doesn't really you know it is a very simple score. But yeah. when you see it with, but when you hear it with the images, it just gets its brute, brute level effective. Yeah, in terms As, of how it works,
1: especially when you've seen it more than once and you start figuring out where Michael is in relation to the music.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, And, you know, once you start making that connection, then the fright level goes up a whole nother notch because it's, you start to make the connection like, oh my gosh, that music's for him. If you hear that music, he's around here somewhere. Mm -hmm. And that's part part of the thing. He's everywhere. It it, it is what you figure out by the end of the film, like, so with that music playing, you're like, my gosh, he can pop up anywhere at any time. So, so, so there's never a chance to catch your breath because as soon as you relax, he's there again. Yeah. And, but also there's, enough, there's another music thing I wanted to highlight since we were talking about it. And I feel like it may have been drowned out by the iconic theme because of course, everyone's gonna remember that iconic theme the most, but there's also a really interesting musical moment that happens when Michael kills um especially the first couple times when he the first couple teenagers he kills Mm -hmm. the way that it's like because for some reason i thought that iconic theme was the only thing associated with michael so i thought that's what we would hear when he killed if that makes sense yeah yeah but but it's not those first couple kills you get this large almost it's almost a groan, you know, somewhere between a groan and a scream that just drowns everything out.
2: Yeah. I, I know and, what you're talking about. Yeah.
1: And, and, I, and I've almost, I, I've, th- I've thought about it, and I've almost wondered if that's meant to be, like, musically, what's in Michael's head as he's doing this, like, or, or if that's just meant to represent Michael himself because he's meant to be pure evil, right?
0: Yeah, that's the that's the basic basic idea is that he he's no he's not a human. He is he is evil incarnate.
1: And and so like I feel like that sound cuz it's cuz that sound like the first time I watched this Halloween it gave me nightmares and in my nightmares I heard not just the iconic theme but that sound too cuz that sound made my hair stand up. You know, it's like you know, that's what evil must sound like, I feel like.
0: Mm-hmm. No, you know, that... It, it, no, cause go cause ahead.
1: Because evil, evil doesn't have shape. Evil doesn't have melody. Evil just pushes out at you.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: And, yeah.
0: No, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. And, uh, yeah, that... Cause, and that's... It's it's one of those... It's It's essentially one of those pieces of music that's essentially it it emphasizes a jump scare, and the way mm-hmm. it does it in that case is just out and out terrifying, almost as much as the shower scene music in Psycho.
1: Oh, oh, oh yeah, um, I agree. Um, but you know what's also interesting is Carpenter also knows when to not use music, which mm-hmm. is just equally as hard. Case case in point, um, you know the part of the part of Halloween I find the absolute scariest. What is that? The, uh, it's the scene late in the movie. Lori has found her friends dead. She's sobbing in the hallway. There, correct me if I'm wrong, but there's no music playing during that time, right?
0: Uh, if I remember correctly, yeah.
1: So all we hear is her crying, and in the silence, you suddenly see Michael's face appearing in the moonlight behind her. Mm. No, no music of any kind, no iconic yeah. theme. But I swear that is the most terrifying moment in the entire film.
0: Mm. The the fact that they're and and I think that is an important part about film music that really does not get discussed enough. Not just the use of music, which of course is you know is is what most people remember but more importantly when you don't use music yeah
1: and, and, and i've actually made sure to blog about that um one of my first posts um i wrote about iconic scenes that don't use music like um like the chariot race in ben-hur mm-hmm. there's no music from the moment the race starts to the end there's not one note of music yeah um that's one of the more iconic classic examples um or like, or a more recent, still classic example, um, the first lightsaber fight in the original Star Wars between Obi-Wan and Vader, yeah. that doesn't really have any music in it either.
0: No, not until is, the end.
1: Which is kind of ironic if you think about how lightsaber duels have developed since then.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: But but yeah, um, and 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 I've tried to emphasize to anyone who will listen that it's equally important to know when to leave the music off, as opposed to putting it in. Because if you overdo it, you'll you'll ruin the moment, really, for lack of a better term. Mm-hmm. Because some. Because sometimes the audience needs to stew in what they've just experienced, and music can take them out of their feelings when you don't want them to.
0: hmm No, absolutely. And, uh, no, I mean, even, even in a score that he didn't necessarily write, like, the thing, he, he understands that innately. Um. <laughs> And uh, the way, I mean, that's that's another score I absolutely love from his films and Morricone. Like, I that score is just so beautiful to me. Uh, no, that's a,
1: that's the Kurt Russell one, right? Yeah,
0: yeah. Okay. Um. Yeah, it's one of the. It's one. I think it might be like the only one that Carpenter has not as a director that Carpenter directed but de- did not necessarily do the music for I think that's like one of the few films of his if not the only one that he did that with but uh, I think he do- still had a hand in the music but ultimately you can also tell it's a Morricone score all the way through
1: Mor- Morricone did the thing?
0: yeah and oh, yeah. You, can, you can tell you, you can tell too you are familiar I, I, I with his work
1: I am ashamed I did not know that. <laughs> yeah. No, I, well, I, I, I know of the thing by reputation, so I've been too scared to watch it. But now that I know Morricone did it, I'm probably going to have to take the plunge now. So
0: It's, it's a really... It, it's really an interesting... It's really an interesting collision of... And like I said, I, mean, I think... I, I'm sure Carpenter had ideas for the music because, I mean, you can also... You can also hear that it's very much a John Carpenter movie from the way the soundtrack works, but you can also tell it's a Morricone score, too. Yeah. Like, the, the two really fit really well together. But yeah, the thing is something where it, it definitely is as... It, it's very much as... I mean, it's, it's as, it, it can be as terrifying as Halloween at times. Oh, I'm sure. That,
1: that's why I've had to be- <laughs> Long.
0: but um so yeah halloween i mean i that's that's why i'm definitely gonna revisit before halloween ends and uh it's
1: and, it, and, and I, I find it fascinating that um that theme has endured all these decades through all the films no matter how that ba- how good or bad they've gotten in the years since that theme has always endured
0: yeah I mean, it's one of those things where it's like you, you have that theme, you, you, you better you, you better be utilizing it. I mean, it's, it's like the Jurassic Park movies with uh, John Williams' theme. It's like, if you're not using that, then you're doing what something are you doing? wrong. So uh, we are going to continue with another one of Becky's choices. This one is 1979's Alien, composed by Jerry Goldsmith. Um, this is, and I, I'm really excited to talk about this one because I absolutely love this score. Um, and I think
1: the seventies were a good decade for horror, weren't
0: they? They really were. I mean, and then we, we also had Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which I don't really remember the film, the, this, a music in there, but that, that movie is just insanely scary in every way, shape or form but uh yeah i uh, alien ending the decade on a quite a note as horror but also uh being a strong science fiction movie mm-hmm. the the thing that is so in this this is this is interesting this is going to be our first discussion of goldsmith and i love that the two you you chose both of the goldsmith scores we're going to be talking about and we'll talk about the other one later um, the thing that I love is that both of the neat, these these goldsmith scores could ultimately not be any different in how they go about their business.
1: I, I, absolutely. I mean, I mean, and, and not just because there's like 20 years between them, but I mean, you 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 almost wouldn't think they came from the same person if if you heard them back to back.
0: Yeah. Yeah, this one, but, uh, this one definitely feels more like the Goldsmith who did the the Planet of the Apes score in the early 60s, in the late sixties, yeah. and um, really, it I I love that it's, it it works off of simple simple motifs. The use of percussion is very sparse, and, but and so
1: much sense. Oh my god, so yeah. much
0: and I think that's really befitting considering how much of a slow burn this movie is.
1: Oh yeah. And, and and the the music when you hear it, because the the thing with Alien is like even though I picked it like the the way this movie is put together, you almost don't notice the music. Yeah. it's woven in and that's a compliment because any composer I've talked to will tell you, we're not, the audience isn't supposed to notice the music. Right. um, Because it's all supposed to be blended together. Um, That, that's why a lot of times, you know, when we study these soundtracks, we have to listen separately. So we're not distracted. And I always have to do that with alien because it's blended so well. I'll miss whole moments Mm -hmm. Because I'm, I'm, because I'm too distracted by what's going on. But one of, um, I love how the movie starts though because that's the one time you can hear the music cleanly. Yeah. Um, as as the title comes out, and that sets up right away that this is this is going to be a twisted story. Mm Mm-hmm. If if the title wasn't ominous enough, I mean, because there's something about just the way it's just alien. It's like that doesn't sound good. Yeah. But 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 combine that with the music and just the weird way the title pieces itself together. It's Mm -hmm. like it's like oh, you just you've got goosebumps, and the story hasn't even gotten started yet. Yeah. Um, And and I also like how and you're right, calling it a slow burn because. For uh, for the good for at least the whole first act, you know, even after the chest burster scene, um, a lot of times the music just feels like it's you know pacing itself, just biding its time, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and you keep waiting for this big spontaneous moment that doesn't really come until the very end of the film. Hmm. And which, which, which works though, because by the time it does come, you're just quaking in your seat thinking, my God, how is this going to end? Is anyone getting out alive? Right. And, um, and like, um, I, (sighs) but weirdly enough, the part I remember most about this movie isn't the mute. The part doesn't exactly involve the music, but it involves, um, the sound of the motion detector, mm-hmm. which some could argue makes it part of the music. Yeah. Um, I, I know a few musicologists who would definitely make that argument that like that, that the sound should be considered part of the musical score because of the role it plays. Um, you know, once that sound starts, you know, that hits you just as hard as, say, the theme from Halloween.
2: hmm. Yeah.
1: And and so I would swear they they did that on purpose. It's it's almost treated musically.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. And uh what you what what you've said about the soundtrack is absolutely correct. This is this is one of those films where music and sound design start to bleed into one. And I I think this is a great example of that. Another one that came out in 1979, but it's not. A horror movie in the strictest sense is uh, Tarkovsky's Stalker, which is very minimal in its use of music, but at the same time, a lot of what it is is very much doubles as sound design for the film and to create just an otherworldly atmosphere. And I, I think especially with the use of percussion here, the fact that it's very simple motifs we get throughout, I mean even even moments like the landing sequence where you you can tell that it's it's very much a you can if you listen to it separately, it's very much a conventional almost a conventional way of scoring that type of scene, but at the mm-hmm. same time, you don't really notice it. You're focused so much on everything else you're hearing in that moment.
1: Yeah, like um like when they're exploring the alien ship, yeah. Um, that that's some beautiful. I think there is. Maybe I misremembered. There is some good music in that scene, if I remember. Oh yeah. And but, but but you're so drawn into looking at the design of that ship, you just yeah. It it it's like in one ear, out the other before you even knew it was there.
0: mm Hmm. No, absolutely. And uh this is the the use this is one of those things Ridley Scott has always been fascinating with how he uses music in films. I mean, whether you're talking about this, whether you're talking about Blade Runner, whether you're talking about some of his movies later where it's a combination of different types of music, not just traditional score, but also, you know, Songs. I mean, I'm kind of thinking of uh, Black Hawk Down as an example of that where it's not just scored by Hans Zimmer; it's uh, it's just a bunch of other uh, artists that are contributing to the soundscape. It's it's really interesting to hear the ways in which he he he. Comes up with where he he instructs his composers to go from a musical standpoint, and to to really do something that is even even if we don't necessarily consciously pick up on it on the first view, the next time we see that movie is going to be oh that's really interesting. I how could you know I I didn't necessarily pick up on ways doing and then it just becomes something that's as vital part of the uh of watching the the movie as the images
1: yeah but um, it's fascinates me how much of the stuff with the alien has no music at all it cuz you'd think being of the iconic creature that it is that it would have the lion's share of the music mm-hmm. But it doesn't, and I don't think the score is meant to be geared that way. It's it's almost more atmospheric than character driven.
0: Yeah. Well, and the thing is, it's like we are so conditioned to expect, you know. I and you know, it's it's one of the things that John Williams scores have been have excelled in the idea of leap motifs, the idea of different characters and different ideas and different places having their own specific themes i mean that was something that was even even in the late 70s by the time he had done jaws he'd done uh star wars by oh. this point. so i mean that was that was starting to be something that we kind of expected so when somebody what? gets away from that i mean that's never real and the thing is that the thing that's kind of interesting is it's never really been goldsmith's game as a uh composer i mean he kind of does that to a certain extent the omen um
1: well, well i mean remember he did the he did star trek the motion picture the same year that that has a that has a pretty iconic enterprise theme in
2: it
0: Mm-hmm. no that's true and i'll 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 admit i'm not i'll admit i haven't watched star trek the motion picture oh well but uh it, so I'm not as familiar with his score for that. But at the same time, I mean, even if you if you think about Planet of the Apes, there really isn't a defining theme to that movie that goes all the way through. And there isn't really something that goes through the franchise. I mean, I think that's kind of what I'm thinking about, too. Now, I mean, obviously, you you listen to stuff later on like uh, basic instinct. There are themes that you hear, and um, oh, what well, am I trying to? Toll recall well, was another one that I was thinking about. I mean, there are definitely uses, and the the next goldsmith and the goldsmith film we're talking about later. There are certainly themes that go throughout that, but it's interesting how when he had a chance to make a science fiction film, you know, in in that vein, that's kind of a horror film that he also didn't really go that route
1: yeah but but what's interesting though is because I mentioned Alien and Star Trek the Motion Picture were done the same year, and what's interesting is if you listen to those soundtracks back to back, there's some crossover between them in the quieter hmm. moments um, because uh, cause, um there's one scene because i off the top of my head, I don't know which one came first, but there's a bit in the motion picture that sounds like it belongs in Alien. It, it, it to 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 put it that way. Huh. And and, and I'm sure that's not an accident.
0: Right. Okay. So uh, Alien came out in May of 1979. So I'm guessing this came before. I would imagine this came before motion picture because I. I think motion picture was like probably a later release in the year. So let's see what I can see right quick. Seventy nine, oh.
1: December seventy
0: nine. Yeah, so it would be, so Alien would have been the first one. I mean, you know, I mean, it's it's certainly not yeah, it it's certainly not uncommon for composers to you know reuse idea motifs reuse ideas um and
1: but but, but it's not every day you can actually catch it happening because most of them are good at blending it in so much you don't notice unless you're actively searching it
0: out Mm -hmm. yeah uh and uh no alien is yeah i i it's I love Alien. It's like, it, this is, this, you know, I, I know a lot of people prefer Aliens, but nah, I, for, for me, this one will always be the better, best movie in that franchise. And uh, the score is the, score's the big part of it.
1: Well, I've always said it's not fair to compare Alien to Aliens because Alien is pure horror. It's pure sci-fi horror, I should say. And whereas Aliens is an action movie. So yes. it's not... It's not a fair comparison because there are different genres. Um I mean, yes, one's a sequel to the other, but it's a sequel set in an entirely different genre than the first. Mm-hmm. So Yeah. Not you can't compare the two on the really because yeah. Yeah. But um No, you're right. Yeah. On that. Yeah, in, in terms of pure horror, I mean, honestly. I know Alien has spawned so many sequels and prequels and stuff. Nothing's come close to topping Alien for sheer fright.
0: Yeah, oh, yeah. No. I mean, you know, it's like, even even if I have an affection for some of those other ones, it's like there, it's none of them really are even close in that vicinity. Um, and, uh, I mean, there, there are a lot of reasons for that, but the, the fact of the matter is, it's like, you know, when when Ridley Scott did Alien, it's like he 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 understood he understood. I I can't, kind of feel like, to a certain extent, he he understood where horror was headed in that way. And because um, I mean, you can kind of you can kind of see similar types of movies being played out. This, there, you can definitely see like Jaws being an inspiration for this or even Halloween where it's like the alien is essentially a slasher. It's it's yeah. just a very different type of slasher than what we're used to because of how just how many different ways it can get it. And yeah. that's and that's the, one of the uh, things that's interesting about it.
1: Yeah, and especially the fact that the alien can and does appear from anywhere.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and the use of shadows in the film is just wonderful. To where we don't completely, even even with the chest burster, you don't necessarily. Uh, even though that's obviously a small version of the alien, you still don't get a clear picture of what yeah. the alien's going to look like. Well, we well
1: yeah, I mean the the the, the little the little alien and big alien the only similarity is in the head yeah Um, everything else is like well and and even then that's another part that's terrifying is you never once see the alien fully stretched out they did that on purpose
2: yeah
1: um well partially because if they did it would have become obvious it was a guy in a rubber suit but (laughs) um but um, but 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 since you never see all of it at once, that makes it all the more scary because you're like, where is it? Where's the rest of it?
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, absolutely.
2: I and,
1: and, and to this day, it boggles my mind that that's a person in there. Like, <laughs> it doesn't it doesn't seem possible, but that that's that 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 that's a person. But you know, I've seen the Wikipedia page. He was real. Mm-hmm. Like. And, and it's like... And that's one of the reasons I feel like the older horror works because, like, it would not work if that was a CGI creation, if that makes sense. No.
0: No. It, it wouldn't.
1: All, all the horror comes from the fact that that is a real thing, and the eye knows it, and... Yeah. hmm
0: No, ab- absolutely. And, uh... Alien is it, Alien's one of the, you know, I I think Alien stands out as still, well, first of all Alien stands out I think is probably one of the most legitimately, you know, scary movies of all time and and certainly something that is one of the uh one of the scariest um one one of the scariest science fiction movies of all time, and in mm-hmm. the fact that the helplessness that we feel throughout that film of them being trapped in with this thing is just it, it's it's quite something to experience.
1: Yeah, I mean that that that's the worst part. It's like they're in space. There's literally nowhere to go.
0: Yeah. So we're going to, I uh, we're going to shift and we're going to go to my next choice here, which is 1987's Hellraiser. Which the, the 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 timing of this seems appropriate because we're getting a new uh, take and a new take on the uh, world created by Clive Barker and in this coming week that's coming to Hulu. And this is a score by Christopher Young. And I deliberately chose, there were two specific composers because of how much their work means in the genre, to me at least, that I wanted to highlight in this. Um, And Christopher Young is one of them. He is an acclaimed composer who's best known, I think, for his work in the genre. Hellraiser being one of the best examples. He also has worked with uh, Sam Raimi in Drag Me to Hell. He also worked with Scott Derrickson on Sinister. He also worked on The Grudge, the 2004 film. He's done a lot of really terrific Genre work over the years, but I think the thing there are a lot of reasons why one to highlight Hellraiser, and I I think it's because of the fact that it it kind of gets it's funny because it really gets away from the type of scores that we've talked to talked about at this point, which is very simple, you know very evocative, focusing on atmosphere, using using very quick motifs to get to their the emotional point that we're supposed to feel in those films. And this one is the first one where it's a full-blown orchestral explosion of music. And that's one of the reasons why I think it's, so interesting to put up against these scores that we've talked about so far because that's very unusual and I I kind of feel like even even in something like Jaws or Psycho which are very much orchestral scores, they're not going for this broad, big orchestral theme. They're ultimately about these motifs that Build throughout the film, and I, I think that's one of the things that's so striking about what Young does with El Razor.
1: Yeah i i I agree with all of that. Um, it's the, the thing is, like, it may be a full orchestral score, but the way that film is set up, you almost don't register it. Yeah, because um, that kind kind of like with. Suspiria, um, that... I had to take, like, a two-week break from movies after I watched Hellraiser. It, that... For a person like me on the spectrum, I found Hellraiser to be almost completely overwhelming. mm -hmm. uh, Because, like, that movie wastes no time in getting started with what it's known for.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, and... Yeah, I... I, actually, I had, actually had to pause a couple times um, to, before I could get through it. and But, um, oh gosh, what was it? There is one musical part that did stick out to me, and I'm trying to remember when it was. I think it was um, when,
2: what's the girl's name? Oh. Uh, what is, wait a minute. I've, I've got IMD. Uh,
0: Julia? Oh, uh, maybe. That's, that's, yeah, because Christy is the, Kirsty is the uh, niece, I believe. So yeah, Julia is the, Julia is the main yeah. female character.
1: You no, know, but, but Kirsty's the one I'm talking about, I think, when, when she solves the box. Oh, yeah. And um, there's this music that plays when she's walking down that corridor before she runs into the Cenobites. Is that how you
0: say that either that or Cenobites. Um I think either um, way is fine. But but
1: but it's like I don't know I there was something he did about the music in those parts where it's like it for such a brutal movie it was surprisingly delicate. Yeah and, and yeah. I and I've and I've noticed a lot of horror movies seem to do that. They they contrast the brutality with this light almost delicate Music And it's such a strange contrast that it just sticks in my head.
0: I think that kind of goes with the, the story by Barker and the idea that the, uh, the Cenobites are these really grotesque characters, but they mm-hmm. also are offering pleasure to people. And I think it's that dichotomy I, I think it's that contrast of the 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 profane these profane characters who are wanting to give people who who solve that box um, pleasure and finding pleasure in pain. I I feel like that's part of part of the reason we uh, part of the reason that Christopher Young and you know, under Clyde Barker's uh, instruction, probably went in that direction.
1: That 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 does make a twisted amount of sense. Yeah. Uh, well, because the whole thing with with the, those the Cenobites is um, for them, pain and pleasure are the same thing. There's no difference.
2: Yeah.
1: And so, um, but another. Um, uh, there was another moment, um, when uh, when Frank puts himself back together for the first time. Mm-hmm. The the music for that moment, wow, yeah, that talk about perfectly writing music to accompany a very messed up scene. <laughs> uh, well, because well, that's the thing, like you have to be careful with moments like that because if you the wrong music can ruin a scene, um, and so because, c- like, you know, y- you don't want to make it too over the top, or the audience won't take it seriously, no matter how grotesque it is. Yeah, and but he nailed it. Like, there's just in the, There's like, there's a mix of horror and revulsion in the music. Like, this, like, you're just geared to think even by the sound alone, like, this is the most horrifying thing I have ever seen, but you can't look away. Mm-hmm. And those, are, that and that scene in the hall, in the corridor, to the other world, are, like, the two big musical moments that stuck out to me from Hellraiser.
0: Yeah. uh, Clyde Barker is, he? he's definitely, subtlety is know. not something... That comes with Clyde Barker. I mean, if you read him on the rent on the page, if you watch the three movies that he's, wa- that he's made made, um, he he definitely is not. He solely is not something that he goes for. But at the same time, there's something about it, and especially with this one, because I a couple of years ago I did. A piece for my, for the Patreon on Clive Barker. And I basically read all of the short stories and novellas that he, had, he himself had adapted into films mm-hmm. uh, for Hellraiser, for uh, Nightbreed, and for Lore of Illusions. And one of the things that you really capture on, from him on the page is that there's something about he he treats his characters very delicately as as an author and there's something about even the most grotesque characters there's always like frank who is completely a terrible character in the film and on the page he ultimate but there's something about his pursuits that Clyde Barker can't help but highlight as something that is 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 very human. He doesn't treat his characters in an inhuman way, and I think that's something that's really kind of interesting about his work. And, I mean, you know, any author should do the same, but I think especially I, with his I extreme think, as he goes, it's, it's an interesting choice.
1: You're going to have to explain that a bit more to me because, like... Delicate is not a word I would think of for especially for Hellraiser. Um and especially not with what happens to Frank. I mean
0: Admittedly some of it gets lost in the film. It admittedly some of it gets lost in the film. I'm I, I think I'm referring more to the the short story when I, I, I use that word in the case of this story. Yeah, but yeah. I mean because of the visual aspect of the film that does kind of get lost. And Frank is very much seen more as a monster. And, um. I mean, I mean, e- e- even, even before
1: what happens to him, he's depraved.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but you, in, in the short story, you get more of the dynamic between he, he and Julia before he goes to the Cenobite. Yeah, and I I think that's that's part of where that that is something that admittedly kind of gets lost in the film.
1: Yeah, and and that can happen with adaptations too. I mean, it's impossible to translate everything to the screen.
2: Yeah, but um...
1: although although I suppose when you said delicate, there is a certain delicacy, I suppose, to the puzzle box itself. Mm -hmm. Which, correct me if I am wrong, I think it has its own music.
0: I believe it does, yeah. Yeah, I was listening to it last night. I believe believe it does, so.
1: Which is interesting, like, given what it leads to, that it has such an, uh, well, it's like you said about the Cenobites and Pleasure, like, maybe it does make sense that you would have such pretty music for an object that can lead to something very horrifying. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, and and because that's because what really horrifies me is that it's like it doesn't matter if you open the box by accident or not. If you open it, you're going with them, whether you like it or not. Yeah. <laughs> and, and 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 that's what really makes it scary, especially for me, is like it's like, you mean to tell me if someone who thinks it's just a toy opens it, they're gonna be dragged into this hell dimension, like, you know. That's like, mm, you know, yeah, that, that's, that's true horror. Like, you know, <clears throat> being stuck in a situation, you can't escape.
0: Mm-hmm. But, um, I, no, I, and I will, I, I, this is actually going to be one of my repertory reviews for Sonic Emma, uh, uh, revisiting this movie and reviewing it. Uh, and i'm I'm looking forward to doing so because of the fact that i mean it's it's a uh, it's it, it's it's a movie that really burned itself onto my my head when my brain when i first watched it and especially now that i've after having read the story um it's in listening to the score several times in preparation for this i i just love listening to this music because of the fact that really it it captures something it it captures a, a way of telling horrific stories that we don't really get as often mm-hmm. i think in horror that we're used to although i mean certainly although actually our next our next Score in a way, kind of kind of does that in the same way, but it's going to be a different, different way. But he certainly is... It's another composer who's done that a lot over the years. Mm-hmm. And uh, we'll go ahead and head into that. So my third score is 1991's...
1: Well, well, well before you we do, can I add one last thing about Hellraiser? Yeah. I, I just wanted to say, because um, after experiencing it the way I did, um, if anyone... Anyone wanting to check out Hellraiser, just be aware that it is a very intense story. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I would, you know, if, if you've only seen casual horror up until now, just be advised this is a whole nother level of horror. So
2: yeah, no, I that's
1: only. F-
0: no, that's fair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Clive Barker is not for the faint of heart. Certainly, I mean, even. Although I mean, my first experience with with his with his work was uh, *Lord of Illusions*, but that's that was that was very much not even remotely in the same ballpark of ways doing with *Hellraiser* or his other film *Nightbreed*. Um, you know, but *Hellraiser* is yeah. I mean, I would agree with that. I I, I certainly uh, I do think it's worth uh, putting that. Putting that caution out there for if you're interested in Hellraiser, especially with the new film coming to Hulu, that this this is this this is a tough one. Um, it's 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 more grotesque than anything we've talked about so far. It's more intense in terms of the ways it portrays violence than even Alien and Suspiria, I think. Um, oh
1: yeah, way, way. I could, I could argue it's the most grotesque film on the on the list.
0: Oh yeah, that I, I think that's completely fair. It, I, it really is, especially compared to the next two. Um, which uh, we'll go ahead and go to. Uh, this is my yeah. last score, unless you had anything more to say. no nope. Okay. So, my last score was for 1991's The Silence of the Lambs, uh, composed by Howard Shore. Howard Shore is another composer that I wanted to make sure in this discussion of horror music that we talked about. Because he is so... I mean, most people are more familiar with him as the composer of the Lord of the Rings movies or Peter mm-hmm. Jackson now. But he really, and it's funny because of the fact that he also was a band leader on Saturday Night Live early on in his career, and worked on the Blues Brothers. And you know, you can you can kind of get the feeling that he's got he's got a sense for how to score comedy in his scores for Ed Wood and uh, Dogma in the '90s. But ultimately, he is best known for horror. Prefer mainly in his collaborations with David Kronberg. Uh, the reason I did not pick a Kronberg film is I'm not as familiar with Kronberg's work in horror as I am other people. So, as, as much as I am some of his later work, like Spider and History of Violence, Eastern Promises, and stuff like that.
1: Does that mean you haven't seen Crimes of the Future?
0: I have seen Crimes of the Future, yes.
1: Okay. I, I, uh, at least you've seen that. <laughs>
0: yes, I have seen Crimes of the Future. That, that's a terrific Howard Shore score, actually. Um, mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, I would, if i if go gone with a Kronberg score, I will probably want to go with something from the 80s, like Scanners or Videodrome or The Fly. What about,
1: what about Crash from the 90s?
0: I, I will admit I'm due a rewatch on Crash because when I first saw it I absolutely hated it. But I also was not prepared for Gromberg at that time. So yeah. i I'm, I I do the I owe that I just talked to a friend of mine. It's funny a friend of mine brought up Crash a couple last week when we were uh, getting together and uh I, I told him the same thing. I'm I'm due for a rewatch on that. I need to give now that I'm more familiar with Kronberg, I I need to give that movie another chance. So, um, but I chose Silence of the Lambs because I I think it shows a lot of what Howard Shore really does well when and effectively when it comes to horror, which is he he's somebody who is he he's somebody who is really effective at quiet moments, but he also, as well as building atmosphere. And I think that's one of the things that is so, that is the main thing I think that is so effective about his work in Silence of the Lambs. Well,
1: especially considering who's in it, I mean, that I, I was literally scared of Anthony Hopkins because of this movie.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, I mean, and, and honestly, I feel like with with such a presence as he has, you need a quiet almost. You almost need require a quieter score because of that. Otherwise, like because he dominates every scene he's in.
0: Yeah. No, absolutely, and um, you know it. It's you know I I think because of the fact that this. You know, this is this is nominally a horror movie because of the fact that it's dealing with serial killers and it's dealing with horrors of reality. And I think that's what makes it I think that's part of what makes it even scarier is the fact that there is no supernatural being in this movie. This is the the terrors in this movie are coming from man. And I think that's what makes this movie as, as it, is, it is, makes this movie terrifying to consider in that way.
1: Oh yeah. I mean, I, I actually, I hadn't even thought about it like that, but yeah, there's, this is almost the kind of movie you would almost expect there to be a supernatural thing revealed at some point, especially given Dr. Rector. Yeah. Um, I, I think I think if it had been revealed that he was like possessed or something, I don't think anyone would have blinked at it.
2: Mm-hmm. To
1: except except for the fact that it's not in the original story, but right. but 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 the but the fact that it's not and the fact that he's, I mean, I fixate on him every time I talk about this movie. But he speaks so rationally; it's frightening.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, and, and and although to be honest. I'm actually not, not a big fan of The Silence of the Lambs. Uh, as, be, be, as, aside from Anthony Hopkins' performance as Hannibal Lecter, I don't like the rest of this film.
2: Mm. It,
1: it's, just not, it's, it's just not a favorite of mine. Um, the whole thing with Buffalo Bill and all that, mm, I just, I, I've never been able to quite properly... I've got a copy and I keep trying and maybe if I watch it a couple, more times now that I'm older, um, maybe I'll have a better appreciation of it now. But when I was in college, I could not get into this movie at all.
0: Hmm.
1: Because because I wanted more of, of Hannibal Lecter. He he's the most interesting part for me.
0: Right. I I can I can see that because of the fact that Hopkins really does. To a certain extent, he does he? It is such a strong. Character and it's such a it's such an ident it in instantly iconic character even in that first scene that you do want to feel like this is more of his story than is Buffalo Bill. Buffalo Bill is you know certainly I I think Buffalo Bill can be an interesting character, but he's also he he's also the he's the version of hamble lector in a way that is not as... Refined? Pers- well, not as refined, but also not as... not as... not as calculating. He, yeah, I mean, that... which, yeah, I mean, refined is a... probably is a better way of putting it. And... Um, but I think the I I think the way, but yeah, the ways in which Lecter uh, seduces Clarice into his mindset, and even if she doesn't, even if she doesn't see the world in the same way he does, the fact mm-hmm. that she can understand the ways in which he looks at the world is really kind of troubling, and that's one of the things that's so fascinating about this movie I think
1: yeah because cause, I mean it's, it's it, the, the parts of the I really need to rewatch this movie because like I, I do remember it it left me feeling very unsettled when I would get done with it just because of you have to sort of put yourself however temporarily in lectures mind you and that's a very unsettling place to be yeah and um, I I can't get over how Howard Shore being a, a horror composer. Like I I swear I didn't know that. Yeah, and I should and I should have known that. And that sort of explains something to me, like because there's bits of horror in the Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. Yeah. and that like um, like when the Watcher in the Water grabs Frodo, that's like a horror moment.
0: Oh yeah, a moment. And, and, with- and, a moment with the ring race in Lord of the Rings, just and that,
2: yeah, yeah, and that's
0: that explains why he was so how he could do he he
1: could shift in the horse so well. So yeah,
0: I I think it's mainly it you you have to look at it through that that prism of his collaborations with Cronenberg, and because yeah. I mean with Jonathan Dem- he's he's worked a lot with Jonathan Demi the director this and but and they've got a variety of films i mean this this philadelphia are a couple of them but i mean you can also see movies like single white female crash uh which is Kronberg. he he did seven in the game for um david fincher and he also did the cell for tarzan which is <laughs> another one of those that is Kind of horror, but also more of a proceed as much of a procedural thriller as well, and the same way that Silence of the Lambs did.
1: Now I have to ask: did, did Shore do Hannibal as well, the sequel to this?
0: I uh, no, Hans Zimmer did Hannibal. Okay, yeah, um, and I I love Hans Zimmer's score for Hannibal, but yeah, I, there's there's something about. But um, I love it because of the fact that it's it's an instance of Hans Zimmer doing horror in his way, but I think The Ring is the better example of that, really. Uh, Silence of the Lambs very much feels in keeping with a lot of the ways in which Howard Shore composes horror in the way he uses very, very... Evocative senses of dread when it comes to, you know, building up. It's this is so much of this movie is all about build up and building up tension in scene, as opposed Mm -hmm. to quick bursts of uh, tension, like what you were talking about earlier with uh, Halloween.
1: Yeah, but isn't isn't there a is is. All right. Is Silence of the Lambs the one where Lecter's listening to classical music, or is that Hannibal? I, I get the two confused. I think,
0: I think he does so in both, but I know I do remember there being a scene in uh, Silence of the Lambs where he's listening to classical music. But I know Hannibal uses it too.
2: because
1: c- c- um, it, it's just an interesting contrast like having such refined music in a, in a in a such a horrifying story um only in this case it's diegetic and not something the composer specifically created mm-hmm. and and so it's like like once again that contrast comes up and i'm starting i'm starting to think that's a that's a trope of horror films i really need to write about um because i'm just realizing as i lined up so many horror films will we'll pair up the opposite or music that you would think would be opposite to a horror film. And I guess that, that, that would keep you unsettled mm-hmm. as, as, as the viewer.
0: Yeah. Uh, this is, you know, this is, this is a m- movie that really doesn't play a lot with definitive themes for, for characters. And I think that's kind of interesting. I mean, you do get a sense of themes for Clarice and for Hamble Lecter, but they're not as instantly identifiable as some of the other ones that we've talked about, especially for Halloween. Um, and I, I mean, think that's kind of interesting.
1: It, it could almost be argued that there aren't proper themes in this one, too. I mean, there they don't have to be proper themes in the score for any film, Um and I've I've certainly never thought of I've never thought of this particular one in terms of themes, and that might be why I partially why I subconsciously don't like it as much because I gravitate towards light moti- light motivic music, right? Um, and so the ones that are more atmospheric or evocative, like the Silence of the Lambs, I have trouble with them because. I feel like there's less to grab onto. It's so, it's so there. There's nothing to quantify.
2: Yeah.
0: No, go ahead.
1: Well, and that could be because I'm on the spectrum. So I view things a certain way, but, um, I, I've always struggled a bit with scores like this.
0: Hmm. That's. That's interesting but actually it does but that does make a lot of sense though and i mean not not just not just um in in the context you're referring to though but just just in general because of the fact that i mean and really it does kind of make make sense that light motifs have very much uh become a natural staple to a lot of film music because of the fact that it does give it does give the viewer something to latch on to. And mm-hmm. I, and this is, this is approaching um, film music in a very different way. I uh, almost in not, not necessarily in an experimental way, but really also keeping in with that idea that the music should almost be, you shouldn't really notice the music to a certain extent in the, while you're watching the film,
1: mm-hmm. and I, 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 would say, I, I would say they definitely succeed in this one because you know there's a lot, lot of movies I can think of it, and a little snippet of music will pop up in my head, but I don't get that with Silence of the Lambs. All, all I, the only thing I can conjure is visual, and that's Lecter in a cell, probably the most iconic image from from the movie. If, yeah. if I had to take a guess.
0: Yeah, no, I, I def that's that's definitely the most iconic one. Um, yeah, it's it's this one is, yeah, I mean this one this one is interesting, but I mean I I think because of, I I think sort of because one of the things I do like and I uh, you know it especially comes into play when we when we're talking about our uh, last score here is that one of the things I like about this is that we're we're talking about a wide variety of film music and film composition and ideas of how film music can work in a film. Um, not just obviously in terms of supporting the film, but how the music goes about its business in supporting the movie. And mm-hmm. I, I think that's 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 one of the reasons I was really excited about this one, is because of the fact that most of the all of these kind of go about it in very different ways. Yeah. So, uh, is there anything else that you add on Silence of Lambs before we go to our next one?
1: I don't. Sorry. Okay. That's
0: hey. That's that. No, that's fine. Um. That that's that's quite all right. And so we are going to conclude with your third choice, and we're we're going to leave on a uh, sense of fun that is very much missing from the previous five films. Is 1999's The Mummy, composed yeah, I, by Jerry Goldsmith?
1: Yeah, I was so worried you. I was worried that when I mentioned this, that you wouldn't go for it as for horror because it's uh, honestly I know it's. A remake of one of the mo- of one of Karloff's horror films from the '30s, but
0: I think people forget this is technically a horror movie. I um, I will admit, I mean, I was you know I I was I'll admit when I first saw it, I'm like, that's an interesting choice. Not quite horror, but you know, I was associating it with as well. It's a remake of the old Universal monster movie or a new or an updated version of the Universal Monster movie. So, okay, yeah. And then I listened to it. And one of the things that did strike me so much is that first and foremost, you get the strong sense of adventure, of fun, that most people associate with this movie. Yeah. But one of the the great things about what Goldsmith does in this score is he never forgets the horror roots of this story.
1: Oh, absolutely not. And and that, that's part of why I picked it. Um this is one of my favorites. I've been a fan of Goldsmith probably as long as I've been a fan of John Williams and this is this is um this is one of my favorites. Um it's very it's very late Goldsmith and I I often like to call it like the last gasp of old Hollywood cuz he was one of the classic greats. Yeah. Um and this was sadly only a few years before he died. So yeah this is like hearing um, a horror film as one of the old greats did it. Yeah. They just don't make them like this anymore.
0: Mm -hmm. No. uh, No, you're absolutely right. And I was, you know, I I did find it kind of interesting uh, that you did pick two scores from Goldsmith, but not surprising because Goldsmith was one of the greats. And we, even though he had been around for, Decades, we still lost them way too soon. Um, yeah, and...
1: it's always it's always too soon when they're that good. And... Yeah,
0: yeah, and um, it's it's one of those things where uh, I I'll, I'll admit I'm probably like one of the only people on film Twitter that's not a huge fan of this movie. But really? I mean, I I it's it's fine. It's just I don't have the same affection for it that other people do. But I mean, there are certainly things I enjoy about the movie now. But um, I I will say, listening to the score, I absolutely I love listening to the score because oh, yeah. I'm not as familiar with it as I am some of the other ones that we're talking about it because of the fact that I don't necessarily equate it with horror the way that um, I equate all of the other ones that we've talked about with horror. But I I love that this is this is very big and broad, and part of that is the adventure that is foremost paramount in this, first and foremost stands out in this film, but also the fact that when he when he goes to that place of horror, and I mean the one of the I, I talked about I mentioned The Omen, his score for The Omen earlier, but mm-hmm. I mean, you know, he he wrote one of the definitives, he wrote another one of the definitive horror music scores of all time in The Omen, uh, which was yeah. his only Oscar win. And I love that Goldsmith always had this sense of creating atmosphere, but also Capable of doing something that is very. What's the what's the word I'm trying to use for it? Um,
1: I mean, there are leitmotifs motifs, in this one for sure.
0: Oh yeah, yeah, very um, much I
2: mean,
1: so. I mean, I mean, because you said how we've been moving through and things have slowly becoming more orchestrated. This is like the most orchestrated symphonic of all the scores we've talked about. Yeah, and and I I I've i also as um it's a very romantic kind of horror mm-hmm. that 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 he goes for um, and I like how it's like you know even keeping with the the full orchestra there's that whole horror and menace especially um especially when Im- when Imhotep and his priests are being punished yeah. Um, the, the, that's probably the, the the prime example, um, because, like, it's just, you know, the music just, right, there's, maybe it's not proper music, but there's definitely something grinding in the background that underlines the horror of what's happening to them, um, aside from what you're seeing, of course. Right. And... But I think it really, he really kicks it up a notch once Imhotep starts getting his powers. Mm-hmm. Um, all the music with that, it's like, you know, it, that's when it becomes epic and scale. Like, you know, it, it's, you know, it's not, it's not the intimate kind of horror, like with Alien. Um, this is horror on a grand scale.
2: yeah.
0: This is no. This is very much in keeping with the tradition of the Universal monster movies and how their yeah. scores sounded, and even the Hammer horror films. And, I mean, I've seen, you know, I've seen both the Universal Mummy I from the '30s. I've seen yeah. the Hammer version of the Mummy. I've heard seen this one, and you know, it, it's even as, as radically different as all three of those are, they're, they're still selling, telling fundamentally the same story in fundamentally mm-hmm. the same way, but it's the way that they're, ways that they're different that is interesting to look at. And this one is certainly playing up more the Indiana Jones, it, it's, it's melding the Universal Monster movie with Indiana Jones.
1: But it works though, I mean it does, yeah. I, I mean, it, and that's why it's endured so well all these years is that it's you know, there's so much action-adventure mixed in that even the one, even the moviegoers that aren't usually horror fans are willing to overlook those parts because the adventure part is so good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. but, but um but, but the horror parts, I'm impressed how well they've held up because you know this was made in the late '90s. CGI's come a long way since then. Yeah, but the but the effects hold up, and I'm impressed at how well they hold up. Um, as, especially when Imhotep's in his first resurrected form, um, when he's all digital. Um, I don't know if you've seen the movie recently, but um, it's
0: been a few years. I we we covered it on the podcast for our uh, class of 1999 series, so I saw it in. 2019 was the last time I
1: saw it. Well, well, well you know, you know cuz like he he comes he comes back to to life in stages so that first stage where he's just this withered husk, um that part has held up extremely well. Even when he first gets his parts like, yeah, you can kind of tell it's digital, but it's not bad looking like how some graphics have badly aged.
0: Yeah. I, I and, do think there I do think there are some moments I do remember from my last viewing that I did feel like some of the moments didn't hold up that well I think some of them don't but oh, yeah. I do think there are some moments that very much do
1: yeah oh yeah I, 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 it's 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 not perfect by any means but it's it's I've seen far worse of of, of things that haven't held up um, Resident Evil comes to mind when I say that. <laughs>
2: Yeah,
0: I. I was, yeah,
1: you know exactly what I'm talking
0: about, too, don't you? Not really, because I haven't kept up with oh. that series because I, I, I didn't oh. like the first one, so I didn't even bother with any of them. But oh. my wife is a fan of that series, so I'm sure I'll watch it. Some well,
1: point. well, in, in in the first in the first movie, the one that you say you don't like, um, everything's great until. The, the liquor comes out i think mm. um and 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 it's a fully it's it's clearly a fully cgi creation and it looks bad so bad so bad it took me out of the moment instantly mm-hmm. and and so and that's that's why i say i've seen far worse examples of of effects that have aged very very badly yeah oh um, I mean, so by contrast, you have a movie that came out three years earlier, and it's held up far better than that effect did.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, and but, to a uh, certain extent, I think that also is, you know, for for all my, you know, I'm, you know, we we talked about how I'm not as big a fan of this as other people are. At the same time, I can I I can under I can certainly see why people still have the same affection for it. I mean, the that mm-hmm. great sense of affection for it because of the care the performances, especially by Brandon Frazier and Rachel Weiss. And I mean just everybody in the cast. They they know what yeah. they're doing. And the fact is this is this ultimately knows what it is. And I, I think yeah. because of the fact that it has that sense of fun. It has that sense of throwing back to the uh you know the this yeah. old serial adventures. I think even when some some of the effects don't necessarily work, you can still kind of overlook at overlook it because of the fact that yeah. you're having having a lot of fun watching.
1: It. We I mean it, there's definitely a nostalgia factor at work here for sure. Um just because it is like resurrecting however briefly um classic hollywood and what made those stories so good and 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 the fact that goldsmith was there to score it just made it that much better yeah um especially um i love say i love i love how the music opened in ancient egypt mm-hmm. um that first big, you know, when you, I know the city that's presented is completely inaccurate, but I don't care. It's <laughs> glorious. I was like, there's a pyramid and a big, and as soon as you see the big painted sphinx, you know you're in for a ride. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's like, yes, it's inaccurate, but I don't care. But I, I don't care. It looks, it looks, for an ancient Egypt nut like me, that whole opening montage is glorious. Mm-hmm. And, and- And the music just, you know, you feel right away that you're in the ancient past. And, you know, even though we don't know what ancient Egyptian music sounded like, he still nailed the feeling that you're there in this whole other world.
0: Mm -hmm. One of the things that I've always been fascinated by with Goldsmith in particular is his use of synthesizers in movies.
2: Mm-hmm. And
0: I there are a couple moments where he uses in this and normal and you know this isn't the same as when Hans Zimmer uses synthesizers in his movies or the way a lot of, even John Carpenter uses synthesizers in his movies. This is the thing that I love about Goldsmith is that it's just when he uses synthesizers in movies, even in something like this, it doesn't sound anachronistic to the time period that the movie's set in because right. of the fact that it, it's an organic part of the orchestra where it just has its moment to come in and then it drops off. That's right, you know, and I, I love the way he's done that over the years with synthesizers.
1: Yeah. And, and and that's, that's, you know, the very best know how to do that. Like, you know, you can take an instrument that you do it wrong, the audience will notice. Yeah. But if you do, it, if you do it right, like I said, it's very organic. And so you don't question why it's there
2: because
1: mm-hmm. it feels proper. Yeah. And, and, um, and, and this isn't, you know, we were talking about earlier about how in you know in movies, you need to know when to use silence um the mummy has a really good example of that right at the end <laughs> <laughs> um when 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 Benny gets what's coming to him yeah um, there's no music. all you can hear are the scarab beetles mm. e-, e even before the light goes out um you know like it's almost like. All the all the trap sliding shut was a cue for the music to stop. Yeah, and all you hear is like his his panic, his breathing, like what am I gonna do? I'm trapped underground. And then you hear the scarab beetles, thousands of them. Yeah, and they're just coming in, circling around him. And then it gets darker and darker, and then the sound leaves nothing to the imagination, but. There's not a not a note of music to go with it. And it's just a it's just a perfect example of how sometimes you don't need music to have a satisfying moment in a movie. Um, especially when a character is getting their, I mean, from almost the moment you meet Benny, you know something bad's gonna happen to this guy at some point. <laughs> and and it's like perf- the perfect comeuppance for a guy like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, um, there's another, there's another theme I like in there. It's, um, it's the music Goldsmith came up with for, um, the love between Imhotep and Anax and Amun.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, it's one of the themes I remember it, it comes up several times and, and I'm pretty sure it gets quoted in the sequel, even though Goldsmith didn't do that one. Mm-hmm. um, Because so, I know Silvestri did uh, The Mummy Returns. Yeah. But it's like, it's one of those, and I understood why it's so sympathetic once I saw the original film, because I only saw the original last year.
0: Oh, wow. Uh,
1: oh, yeah. I, I did not grow up on... The universal horror films. I only just recently got them, relatively speaking. So, see, I have got them all now. So it was only like last last year, or maybe the year before, but I saw The Mummy, mm-hmm. um, and I realized even more. Like by The Mummy Returns, I'm more the. I understood like the sympathetic side of their love affair, but the original really helped me see that you're really meant to feel sorry for Imhotep. Yeah. And that's kind of colored now how I watch the 99 film. Mm -hmm. Like he really is in some, in so many ways, a tragic figure. Yeah. You know, I mean, I mean, even, I mean, even more than Karloff's Imhotep, Mm -hmm. because, because, um, you know, well, actually no. uh, Karlo's did not kill the pharaoh, I don't think. <laughs> I, I I forgot about that part, but um, but, but but still, like, he did it all out of love.: yeah. yeah. and 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 he came he came within a fingertip of bringing her back. Mm-hmm. you know. And, and, that's the, and that that scene gets me every time like, you know, even that has a bit of horror in it when her soul is being dragged back to her body. Mm-hmm. You know that's like that could have come straight out of the thirties, you know, you know, that moment when she's gasping back the life, that could have come right out of a thirties film. yeah and that, that that was probably meant to be an homage to that, too, I mean. And then you know, he's so close, but then he gets it taken away. Like I feel that musically I feel that pain every time. Like, you know, it it's it's amazing how well he 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 did it in such a way that you feel bad for the villain. Yeah. Although there's been whole arguments about is he a villain, you know.
0: Right. I you know, it's like it's one of those things where I mean in comparison to our main characters, he is the villain. But in mm-hmm. terms of him as a character, I think he's he's more of a tragic character than he is a yeah. uh, an out and out bad guy. So. Yeah,
1: I mean, I, I mean, I would say if you could ask him he certainly wouldn't view himself as a villain. He's just, you know, he only has, and this is the part that always boggled my mind about this movie, like. You know, why would you curse a guy with something that would give him so much power if he ever got dug up? Right. You know. Because like <laughs> you know, because like, like if you bury something, there's always the, the chance that it will be unburied is small, but never zero.
0: Yeah, exactly. And we're 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 finding that out in real life. It's like it it almost seems like every few weeks we get something being buried Uncovered and it's like, yeah. Now it's probably. I mean, did you not see the mummy movies? I mean, you yeah. you should know not but, to do this. Yeah, yeah. It was
1: like when, when they found that weird shaped sarcophagus in Egypt. We were all like, "We've seen the mummy. Do not <laughs> open that."
2: <laughs> yeah. Exactly.
1: Yeah, and so it's like, and so and so th- th- that's the one part I struggle with. It's like, why would you do that? <laughs> <laughs> right? It's like. Like the, the only reason he has these powers is because you gave
0: them to him. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't really have a whole lot left to say on, on the mummy. It's, it's Goldsmith. It's, it, it, and if you are not necessarily sure whether it fits in with this discussion, go back and re-listen to it because you'll, you'll definitely find the ways in which it does.
1: Yeah, I mean, I mean, but that's what I think a lot of people. Yeah, if you listen, if you listen to it, you, you'll tell that it may not be pure horror, but it is in the same family.
0: Yeah, definitely. Um,
1: and, and and it's an interesting contrast to like you know, like I said, there's 20 years between the Mummy and Alien. It's you know how his style changed over all that time.
0: Oh yeah, absolutely and uh you know that's that's one of the things that i like about um covering covering really following film music following different composers because you do listen as you listen to their work over the years you do hear how it's changed how it's evolved and in some ways how it's how it's stayed the same but it's also it's always exciting when you hear a composer especially one like goldsmith who had already been in the Business for you know like twenty years, I think when uh Alien came out and then like uh, that. and then at least twenty years more by the time he did the mummy, just to hear you know just to hear the ways in which he was continually changing and and coming up with new ways to express himself musically and help uh bring these stories to life mm-hmm. Uh,
1: like, I said, like I said at the start well, they don't make movie scores like that anymore but I'm glad we have got that
0: yeah no absolutely and I'm, I'm glad I, I'm really glad that you put that on your list because of the fact that it did give me a chance to go back and listen to and go oh okay yeah now I completely hear why this was this was one of our choices this, this makes a lot of sense mm-hmm. um Well, uh, Becky, thank you very much for the discussion today and for joining me to talk about film music.
1: My pleasure. We will definitely have to do this again sometime.
0: Yeah, and I will, uh, I I already have a couple of ideas in mind that may, uh, that will probably make that possible. But before we sign off, uh, where can people find you online?
1: um you can find me um my blog is www.filmmusiccentral.com that's where I I do my blog posts although I'll admit I don't post as often as I used to but I try to post at least once a month um you can also find me on twitter at musicgamer460 um and if you want to keep really up to date with what I'm writing I also write for Cinelinks um, that's C-I-N-E-L-I-N-X
0: okay well Becky thank you very much for joining me and uh, yeah we'll we'll definitely have you on again
1: I'm looking forward to it
0: I'd like to thank Becky for joining me on the podcast today uh, like I said that was kind of a long time coming discussion and I'm really glad we were able to have it I, I'm glad it was about horror soundtracks because I really love horror films uh and horror soundtracks and uh it's it's always fun to listen to how different people approach the genre and i think we had some great examples of that this time that's gonna be it for this episode of the sonic simma podcast thank you very much for joining me uh we've got some more great discussions coming up and i am this is gonna be a fun end of uh 2022 as always, this is uh, Brian Scuttle. Check us out at patreon.com Cinema. Check me out at the Sonic Cinema podcast wherever you listen to it, including the YouTube channel, as well as www.sonic-cinema.com.